Welcome to Career Tools. Our Guidance on Negotiation, Chapter 5, Preparation with an Illustration, Part 2. Here we go. And that brings us to our final bit of guidance relative to understanding what you want and don't want, which is what do you think your counterparty, the other side of the negotiation, what do you think they will want? And I just think, well, no, I know from all the negotiations I've been in um, that not only is this the least um, focused on part of preparation, it is also the easiest to pay dividends that when I have done it and I thought about it for a little bit, when I tried to get on their side of the table, I was amazed at how easy there were two or three things that were obvious where both of us could hold our positions, we wouldn't get what we wanted, and there was a simple way to address the concern. And I've just found that having someone thinking, taking the other side and going, here's what I think I want, and thinking of it rationally um, is very effective. Yeah. Trying to guess what someone else wants is usually impossible. Well, you can guess. I don't, I don't think guessing's impossible. Guessing and getting it right is... Yeah, but I think the impression that people have is, oh, well, we can't know, or how could I, you know, uh, I understand so much more about our position. Sure you do. You're not going to perfectly figure it out. If you could perfectly figure it out, there would be no need for negotiation. You would say, here's where we fit together. There are 35 things. 27 of them are benign, non-problematic. Eight of them are problematic. We've examined these. Here are the five that we need to give up more on. Here are the three you need to give up more on. You'll actually do better. We'll save a bunch of time. You know, there you go. That would be perfect knowledge. If only the world were like that. But I would argue that the whole point of this is, it's, and I would say it's not guessing. Um, it is a reasonable approximation of what you believe their position will be subject to updating throughout the the process of negotiation, which I think we said before, Wendy, but we should say again, if there are contracts involved in this negotiation, it always takes longer than you want. And we probably should have said this several times. If there are contracts involved, there should be a lawyer involved as well. Absolutely. Because only lawyers can read that legalese. Yeah. But it is possible to get close. Even if you don't get as close as you want to be, to understand how the two positions, how the two parties um, fit together and don't fit together. And that helps, that that smooths the way in many ways going forward. Yeah. And if you look at business models of the other industry or the other company, you can start to see where their drivers are. So, for example, when we talked earlier about the conference room, we know a conference a hotel wants to sell the conference room at the most, uh, at the highest price possible. And it really wants all of the additional service services paid for. So like the food and the servers and whatever else you have. And it also wants to fill as many rooms uh, as possible because a hotel room night is useless the day after a room, when a room hasn't been used. So if you knew those three things, and you pitch your position in a way that fulfills a few of those or a couple of those, then you're more likely to come to an agreement. So you might not want to, to um, 
match all of them. So you, you might try and you might agree to their price for the room and you might tell them we'll have 10 sleeping rooms and if we don't fill them, we'll pay you for them. You have to be pretty certain that you're going to fill them. And then you can, in exchange, you ask for the services to be paid off, uh, to be extracted from the quote, because the sleeping rooms and the conference room are more important to the hotel to have profit on than the people working the room or the food or so on, because those things they're going to have to pay for anyway, and the margin on food is nothing. So to to give it to you for nothing is no, it makes no difference almost to their business model. You have to know a little bit about their business model in order to make those guesses. Yeah, and I would actually argue that that while we say you have to know a little bit about their business model, you learn a little bit about their business model but take, by taking their position. The other thing, too, is there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I've thought about this a little bit. We've never worked with a company like this before. We've never had a vendor like this before. Um, you can do one of two things, and this will be at some point a future cast around negotiations, which is you can ask questions which are much more likely to receive honest or candid responses if you have built a relationship. There it is again, relationships. But it's it's completely okay to ask. It's also okay to proffer something to say. You know, it seems to me that this would be okay with you because of this. And they'll respond with, well, yes or no, or you don't understand our model. The issue here, the reason why this doesn't happen in so many cases, is people mistakenly believe that negotiations are about winning. And they're not. Negotiations are about concluding. Uh, they are about deciding that, yes, this deal that we finally signed, we finally agreed to, is a good deal. Not the best deal, not a deal that we get all of what we want, because by definition in a negotiation, you won't, but a deal that works for you and for your counterparty. Because the assumption is your counterparty is someone who is in business or has a reputation or wants to maintain relationships. And if you make a habit of making the negotiations impossible, it'll be a pyrrhic victory. You'll get what you want in the short term and you'll lo- you'll probably lose in the long run if for no other reason than reputation. And some of you may listen and go, no, 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 it's all about winning. It's all about me winning and the other guy losing. Fine. Then you really don't have to. But if you've listened to the previous forecasts on negotiation, I apologize because we're wasting your time. Um, we believe in a sustainable future, um, one in which uh, – I don't try to win every single time, or if I win, I've decided what winning can be. Um, I don't want everything for free right now. And this goes back to uh, BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If I know that if this negotiation doesn't go well, I can say, okay, at some point, these are the lines that we, we can't cross. Here's the the mix of things that we can't cross. And if we go below that, it makes no sense for us to do this deal. We can do something else. We can go somewhere else. We can change what we're doing and so on. And therefore, it's entirely possible that you're willing to give stuff up. If you don't have a best alternative to a negotiated agreement, then you very easily start thinking, I have to be all in. And if you think you have to be all in, you think you have to win at everything, there's no sense in thinking about the other person's position. Because understanding the other person's position makes it easy for you to understand where the give and take could be. Yeah. And I'd argue that winning is easier 
if you do this stuff, if you are willing to have a discussion and put yourself in their in their shoes and are willing to offer something, even though those aren't necessarily the first tactics you think of about winning as the highest of high Ds, I have learned that it's much better to go that way and I win more often. And that's all that's important to me is winning. Um, I win more often when I'm willing to converse with people. I'm willing to engage them in the subject rather than saying, this is what I want, do it or else, which is how I originally thought that's how I was going to win. Yeah, it's it's half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. And the world is really good at giving you one of three things, half a loaf, nothing, or everything. And people think they should get everything. And it's just a sign of insecurity. And it's dumb. But that's a whole separate. You know, I'm sure at some point we're going to talk about asymmetrical relationships and negotiations often are in the case of the book. Oversimplifying here, Wiley, our publisher, wants to make money. Um, what we want is publicity for the rest of the business. We're going to make some money, but in that sense, what they want and we want are two different things. We're willing to give up in some places in the core area that they're interested in, which is money. And it reminds me, some people really won't like this this quote, but it's very helpful in terms of understanding things, that so much of negotiation is asymmetric and getting to the other person's point of view really helps you understand what we want is not what they want and it may be able to both get what we want simply by giving up in the other areas and the the quote that i use after years and years and years of working in washington dc with with a two-party system in america about republicans and democrats which doesn't always translate overseas when, when there are multiple parties and so on. But the two big parties, Republican and Democrats, there's a statement about them, which is, which is kind of, it's not a pleasant statement, but it's, it's incredibly illuminative about their situation and also about negotiations. And it goes like this. Democrats think Republicans are evil and Republicans think Democrats are stupid. The point being they both don't say point fingers at each other and say you're both stupid, okay? Democrats believe that Republicans' motives are bad. Republicans think Democrats just aren't smart enough. The point being, if that's what they think, they are going to choose tactics. And, of course, the tactics these days are vulgar and beneath even, you know, they're certainly beneath our founding fathers. But they're going to take tactics based on their beliefs. And it ends up being a case where they talk past each other. If both of them just thought each other were stupid, they would be talking about the same thing. They would attempt to be smarter um, and they would tend to come to agreement more quickly. And as is often true, when you get into asymmetrical conflict, you end up not being able to come to agreement or even though you win a lot, you lose a lot, um, so much so that it becomes problematic. And taking the other side helps you understand where their thrust will be, what they won't give up on, and so on. And I would encourage you, even if you think you wouldn't be any good at it, I highly recommend you try because just having 10% more than you did will make you more effective. I think putting yourself in that political example as well is really helpful because most people can see it because they see it every day they can they can see what's happening for example everybody would agree that 
people shouldn't go around murdering people and that should be against the law. Like both parties would agree that. And then it's impossible for them both to write a bill about murdering people that they can agree on because it's not the fact that that murdering isn't bad that they don't do uh, don't agree on it's the consequences or you know what should happen after yes exactly Exactly. and how much consideration you take for somebody's background and and the circumstances and so on it's not about the point that you think it's about it's about all of the other things and that's what it's about in negotiation like people always think it's about the price and it and it's often not about the price it's about the other things and if you can step back from that political example and see that that's what happens in politics that they agree on the principle but they don't agree on the implementation or they don't agree on the considerations you can see how that works for a negotiation yeah in fact quite often i ask parties that i'm negotiating with tell me what's most important to you and what do you need here and the point is Getting inside the negotiating counterparty's head can include asking questions. Hey, tell me, what's the key drivers here for you? Perhaps, let's be clear, if that's the key driver, I mean, I think if I'd asked that in the beginning, we ended up having such a good start that I didn't need to ask it. But I'm sure they would have said, no, money's a big part of it. This is our business model, right, for the book. And I would say, well, okay. Um, In fact, one of the things we did was I gave up an advance. I said, that's not important to us. I'd love to see that improved in the in the royalties, but if it doesn't, that's okay. We're going to make enough money on the book. That's fine. Um, now, I hope that that goes to their perception of us as a counterparty. And our point in this cast is to suggest to you that you be willing to do that. And if you listen to this and say, well, Mark was dumb. He could have made $20,000 more dollars by getting an advance or $50,000 more by getting an advance, maybe you're right. And again, maybe we're not the people that you should be listening to for guidance about how to have a sustainable negotiation approach. We know how to negotiate. We probably just don't have the same drivers or the, or the same high points as other people. You know, my, I think most people would assume that we would want the money and actually the money matters very little to us. It's much more about the reach, right? Look, I think what most people don't realize is they go into a negotiation and they see it as a microcosm that is devoid of all the other rules of life as opposed to simply a project to which you bring your character and so on. The -hmm. two most important things I want out of every negotiation are ethics and sustainable relationships. Those are the two most important things. And the problem is, is that people forget about those two things and then make it about a contest. It's like a football game where we kick and gouge and try to hurt the other team, as opposed to trying to win within the rules and helping the other guy up when he's down. An NFL player in the last couple of years, I wrote about it recently, actually had to defend himself because he helped other people up on the field and opposing person on the field. So if ethics and, if you will, reputational standing relative to sustainable relationships aren't at the top of your list, um, then you can do anything you want. And um, as my dad used to say, you can take more than you give, but only for a little while until they run you out of town. (laughs) 
It's very true. My brother, who will ask for anything, soon found out that his other brother would not lend him his tools after several years, because my brother's quite nice. Uh, because every time Robert borrowed tools, they disappeared, and my Martin, my other brother, would never see them again. And uh, in the beginning, he was quite willing to lend to Robert. Right. But after a while, no. Yeah. No. Good. Well, let, let's end with um, our parable. And we call it a parable, but that's such a, that seems like such a big word to people, right? <laughs> it's such a loaded word. Yeah, it and, is. And it's all it means is a story that illustrates a lesson or, or a principle for something. Because they were created when not everybody could read. And so there was only one way to teach people things, and that's to talk to them. And a story is much easier to remember than a dozen points on negotiation. So hopefully this will help stick it in people's minds. This is exactly why there's been a pushback in the last 10 years or so. And there are a lot of books you can buy on Amazon and elsewhere about PowerPoint presentations and Zen PowerPoint and so on, which say it should all be pictures and so on, which is good in the sense that, that um, the typical PowerPoint, people mistakenly believe the PowerPoint is a presentation, which it's not. You're the presentation, but rather that um, we have sucked the emotional life out of presentations. And if you want people to remember things, if you want people to do things based on what you're telling them, then there has to be emotion in the presentation because the words emotion and motion, at least in the Latin derivatives, are the same or very similar for a reason. People do things because of how they feel, not what they think. And by the way, you high C's who just heard that and nearly had a conniption. Um, I'm sorry, it's <laughs> you have true. emotions I'm just, too. I'm just, I'm just citing psychological, you know, rule five, which is. Uh, human beings experience the world. They fil The world happens. We filter the world. We experience the world. We think about the world. And then we feel about the world. And then lastly, after we feel, in every case, after we decide how we feel, we then take action. And that's why emotion emotion, at least in the English, are so similar. So the idea here is we want to share a story. We don't do this very often. We have stories that we illustrate things with that will be helpful. But this one um, is one of my all-time favorites. I'm doing this on bended knee because probably the best book you ever could read, you ever could read on negotiation is called Getting to Yes. It is a book that is part of what is known as the Harvard Negotiation Project. I know there are many, many training courses out there about negotiation. We'll never offer one. But if you have an opportunity to go to Harvard Negotiation or Get Into Yes, we highly recommend it. It's an ethical, sustainable professional and very detailed in terms of preparation uh, negotiation approach. And in the book, they describe this training exercise. And um, I'm sorry, Wendy, I'm taking over because I no, love you this story. No, so you tell the story. You tell good. it best. Yeah. So, so there's a training exercise in the book, large number of participants, and they have two groups. And um, each group is given a different set of instructions. Now, when I first read it, I thought, well, that's when I when I first thought about it, I thought, well, that's not fair. We should have every, both sides should have same instructions. Well, of course, no, that's not true. Negotiation is asymmetric. The whole point of it is you'll have different instructions. The book people want money, and we want publicity. Okay, so the first group is told they're going to be negotiating about an orange. Okay, just one orange, and. The reason they need the orange is to get the zest from the rind, 
I think that's the only time I'll ever use zest, a cooking term. I may use zest in another word, but um, I know when I read a, a recipe that says you need the zest, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> this this <laughs> recipe's over my head. You need the zest that comes from the rind of the orange for cooking. At the same time, because we naturally approach negotiations as win-lose, they're not allowed to tell the other group that's why they need the orange unless they are asked. They can't hit at it, hint at it or anything. The second group, the other group is told, we are also going to be negotiating over an orange, one orange. They need the orange because they want the meat of the orange, the part that you eat. It's called the meat, for those of you who don't know. They're also not allowed to tell the other group why they want the orange unless they're asked. And you could spend all day talking about why you want the meat and so on, but you can't tell the other party. And they assume one of the underlying principles of this is both parties want the meat from one perspective or both parties want the rind from the other perspective. And by the way, if you come back from the negotiation and you say in this training exercise, you say, we couldn't agree on who got the ocean, you fail. You actually can win if your team ends up giving up the entire orange. Um, you cannot win if you can't reach agreement. And that's important because in some cases, you need to reach agreement that us giving you the orange is better than us getting it. Um, it's a sort of a batna. And so in the groups, people start discussing how we're going to do this, right? And it really clarifies there's just one thing in everybody's mind. There's just one thing. It's not some complex contractual obligation with 30 subparts. It's just one item, and it's and to most people, an orange is unitary. It's whole. It's complete. There's no. It's not two things. It's not thirty things. It's one thing, and that makes it way harder in some people's mind. And yet, it also feeds their natural ideas about negotiation. It's win lose. If they get the orange, we don't. But at the same time, it hides the fact that maybe we ought to be digging in to understand more of what we might want or they might want, and so on. So if both people assume that the other side wants what they want, they end up with a stalemate. And here's the important lesson. Uh, one of the important lessons is from the outside, it looks easy. Once you know the cue, once you know the, the key that fits in the lock, you're golden. And essentially what it says is start asking questions. And I'll never forget, I actually, Mike was a client of mine at the time. This was, I don't know, it was 20 20 years ago, and said to me, we need something on negotiation. I said, well, you know, let, let me make sure with the Harvard guys that this is okay. Um, and they did. They said it was okay. And so we used the orange thing. And Mike's people, who were really smart, were astounded how hard they worked to not share what their concern is, what, the, what their issue was, zest, zest, rind versus meat. Meaning, therefore, if you think of it simplistically, therefore, the orange is two parts and Everybody can have what they want. Yay, we all win. Uh, it was amazing to them how much they worked against their own stuff and how much one of the teams actually said, I think there are three teams doing the, the negotiations, three pairs of teams. One, one team said, we didn't like this person on our team um, because she asked lots of questions and we didn't think that was good. We thought we should make our case and we literally made it a debate where we were mm -hmm. going to win. And it was her questions and her 
asking and understanding where they were coming from and trying to understand why they were coming from that and so on, that they actually achieved what they wanted to achieve. And it was a lesson about you got to start asking questions and, and you can only ask questions and get good answers by having strong relationships in the first place. And I want, I want to say one other thing. A couple of groups did not win. They did not. Uh, the orange stayed in the middle of the table, if you will. And they were furious when they found out, <laughs> which is interesting. It's like, well, you can be mad at the world or not, but it was available to you. Um, and all it did was poke holes in their own conception of what negotiation is and is not. So folks, don't forget your two most important criteria in a negotiation are neither winning nor money. It is ethics and sustainable relationships. And relationships leads to, in this case, of course, questions. It reminds me of the salary negotiation advice that you see that says never say the first never say the first number. Oh dear gosh. But if you oh, I mean, gosh. first of all, we're not negotiating on salary salary, but if you asked questions about that, then saying the first number isn't a bad thing, right? If you asked, okay, well, what do you think the range is for this position? Or how much of the other things are you going to pay for, like training and benefits and all that kind of stuff? If you ask a series of questions, then putting out there, I want 60 grand to do this job, stops being a bad thing because you already know what the other party thinks is most important. And often it's not just salary because uh, salary is to a company only about uh, usually about two thirds of, of what you pay to keep an employee. And so the actual number is less important than the rest of the stuff because that's the stuff that it adds up. And you can only get to that by asking questions. And you can't you can't sit there and go, well, I'm going to give them a high number because uh, I want them to give me as much money as possible. Well, you can say that, and that's what you people can. do, and yeah. it's dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, but it, imply, it implies that the totality of your compensation to me will be an orange. That exactly, is it's like the orange. It's, it's unitary, and it's not. It's not. It never is. And more importantly, if I'm interviewing you folks, and I ask you, what are your salary expectations? You either have to give me a number. And if you've been told not to give me a number back, the only appropriate answer is, I've been led to believe the, the offer you'll give me will be in a reasonable range, and that's not going to be a major factor. Now, that's a dodge, but I'll allow you that dodge. In every other case, I've asked you a question. If you get an offer from us, or let's say we haven't given you an offer and it's time for you to ask questions, and you say to me, what, what's the range for this job? and I don't give you the range, you'll be disappointed mm -hmm. and we're appropriately so. By the same token, if I'm interviewing you and I ask you for a salary and you don't give me a range or a salary, I'm going to be disappointed too and you're less likely to get an offer. Anyway, salary is not negotiation. Yes, exactly. Yeah, good. Okay. A great one. Partially because we got to tell the story about the orange. Yes. I like that story. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thanks, folks. That's it for Negotiation Chapter 5, Preparation and an Illustration. Hope uh, it was worth the two weeks you spent with us. See you next week with another great topic. Career Tools produces actionable guidance for professionals every week. To receive additional materials via our newsletter and to find products for situations you may face, go to www.managertools.com. Search for Career Tools on Twitter and LinkedIn.